everybody, Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. How are you? So this is going to be an interesting episode. I'm curious to see what you think because I'm always curious to see what you think. I mean, that's not new. That's I've been curious a long time. But we're towards the end of 2020, the year that just could not suck harder than it did. And it was a sucky year. And we have the opportunity to move into something more interesting and new. And so I have a podcast today, an episode. It's kind of a long one, too. Sorry, but it's the end of the year, so I don't feel too bad about it. That was kind of a trick. It was the old trickery that was handled. So I was doing a podcast with Corey Pitzer. Maybe you heard it. It was great. I mean, it's always good because I like talking to him because he's an interesting guy. He's always thinking about stuff, and he has kind of a cool accent. So it works at every level. And he kind of turned the tables on me. And you'll see, it's it's in the podcast. That's not going to be a mystery. And he talked to me, and he had some questions he wanted me to address. And so that's what we're going to do as we progress through this podcast that will launch us into the new year. And I want to actually challenge us. You know, every year I do New Year's resolution. I try to think of some clever resolution. I don't really have one this year because my mind and soul is so profoundly impacted by the people around me who have had dramatic changes in their life. Their lives are just upset. They're just, they're turned over. They're working differently. Their families are different. There are empty chairs at the table. This is, uh, this has not been a ride for the week. It's been hard. And the ability to manage through this both professionally and personally has been, been quite a test of our resilience I think that's the pearl of that word, but you'll have to help me if it's not. We've been forced to understand what it's like to have additional capacity that we can draw upon when the need is there. And the chronic exposure to this level of uncertainty is having impact. It's impacting all of us. And That's something to be really concerned about. And so my thoughts for the new year is that we take some time and maintain ourselves, both personally and professionally, so that we can at some way, in some level, help replenish the capacity that we've used dramatically throughout the year. That's what I'm going to go with. You can can quit smoking or, or... walk more or whatever. I mean, those are all great too. I'm not against anything, but I do think the challenge is, is in understanding how we can be stewards of capacity, if that makes sense. And I I think you'll understand what I mean by that, how we can replenish our need so that when more chronic levels of stress and change and uncertainty happen, we have something to draw from a resource upon which we can pull energy and stability and a sense of humor and kindness and caringness for humankind and generosity words. I talk a lot about and words that you think a lot about and we talk together about. So that's really my push for the new year. That's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'll I'll speak collectively as if I'm more than one person, but I'm going to try to really think about and, and, do some stock checks to look ahead with some hope and additional resilience and to look backwards knowing that this has been a hard time and that many people have really had some significant changes in their lives. So that's it. I mean, that's the, it's not as joyous and goofy as my normal new year's, but I don't think we've had a really joyous and goofy year. This one's been a weird one. And we're resilient people. That's what we do, human beings. We're adaptive people. That's what we do. Now we're testing our ability to both be resilient and adaptive in the midst of 2020. At the cusp of 2021, which is pretty exciting. So let's listen to the podcast. It's a conversation. It's pretty self-explanatory. 
see what you think. I'm curious to see how this moves us forward or backwards or stays the same. I guess that's the third option, but it is a chance for uh, you to be a little fly on the wall in a conversation we had. And I think it's a perfect ending for 2020. It's a really good way to sort of go out. And so here it is. This is the podcast between the beloved Corey Pitzer and myself. Only this time, the tables have turned. Okay. So, Corey, I've been wanting to get you back on the podcast for the millionth time. You're you're one of the most popular people ever on the podcast in the history of the podcast. And the history is weirdly longer than I thought it would be. But that's a different story. I wanted to get you on to talk to you about what I think is the most pressing issue we have which is shifting organizations towards new thinking in a transformational way, because that's kind of what you do. And so you're perfect for this discussion. Doug, yes, that's uh, thank you for that. It's, it's, it's always lovely to, 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 to come onto your show and onto this podcast, because this podcast is very popular and very well uh, listened to, and it influences a lot of people's thinking. So I'd appreciate the opportunity to do that, but I was actually thinking, since you talked to me, let's do another podcast. I'm going to spring a surprise on you. Okay. Here's the surprise. I'm ready. You've been doing these podcasts for how long now? Uh, more than five years. More than five years. And you always have a guest and you quiz the guests and you challenge them. And, and it's a great listening for, for people. And a lot of people, as I said, learn from us. But you've never been the focus of the podcast right of on, your own podcast right on purpose i always think people don't want to hear from me they want to hear from the cool people that i talk to well today i'm going to turn it around really that's today a surprise i'm going to make i'm going to be the host on Todd's podcast <laughs> okay let's do it i was hoping oh, you were going to be the guest i was hoping you were going to jump out of a cake i guess my my idea of surprise is different than yours i think we we, we <laughs> i think this is the best surprise uh, <laughs> And All I right. think it'll be fun because you'll just roll with it like you always do. I'm, I'm ready. So here I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So I'm going to introduce you. Okay. Take it away, brother. So, Todd, and I'm going to go through all the formal stuff that Todd has and does. I'm going to go through and introduce Todd as an amazing perceptive colleague of mine. An amazing perceptive guy who can actually look with great insight into organizations and have been doing this for many years. I remember, and Todd and I met uh, very much on a trip to Australia. And you remember the trip to Australia with the safety on the edge workshops that we did with Sydney Decker. Yeah, I remember those. I think the first time we met would have been in San Antonio, but we didn't really get to hang out because it was, uh, it was really. No, no, we didn't hang out. That was the first big meeting they did on kind of the new view. And, That's right. and yeah. you and I were both kind of the keynote guys, but I don't know why we didn't get to meet up. It's weird. Yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't going to be famous then, you know, because I didn't have the actor's voice yet. So uh, oh, exactly. You weren't interested in me because I wasn't famous yet. Yeah, that's it. That must have been it, yeah. But Todd, you were famous already then, and then we went to Australia together. And I, I've seen how Todd can mesmerize people with not with 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 fancy terms but with talking at their level and and this is what these podcasts have been and so we look at the the new view of safety and uh it's 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 become a movement so i'm going to put you on the spot now you're one of the uh, and i'll I'll use the word overlord and you'll see why i'll do that in a little bit in in a moment (laughs) wow one of the overlords of the movement um, and, um, and 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 you, you've you've been writing a lot of great materials about this and making this whole concept palatable to people. So we, we, we I'm not exactly sure where in the movement we are, uh, but there's a lot of talk going on about safety differently. Um, and but here's my first challenge, my first question: the whole thinking of of uh, human and organizational performance management, performance engineering uh, uh, of safety different of the new view doesn't match with the most fundamental driving force in an organization, 
And that is the use of power to get things done. We, 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 we need and have power to make things happen. When we talk about the new view, we almost say to people at the top of the organization, you must give your power away. That's the most difficult hurdle, I think, that sits there. There's this incompatibility. What do you say? So I think that's a brilliant observation. And there's so many places that I want to go with that almost immediately. First of all, thanks for all the sweet stuff you just said. I don't think any of it's true, but it was fun to hear you say it. Because with that Afrikaans accent, everything sounds a little bit sexier. <laughs> Let's just put that out there right away. But, but I, think you're, so I think you're right. I would bring up three things that really are fundamental to what you just said. Um, that's a very mature understanding of organizational um, uh, relationships. And the first thing I would say is that it's hard for organizational leaders to, in fact, give up power. And that's kind of the theory of the iron law of bureaucracy, that you're always going to reinforce the power you have with the power you have in an organization. And leaders feel like they're giving up power, which takes me to the second thing that I think is really important to talk about early in your question which is the difference between really control and influence. And they're very different. They're very, very different. And when you say power, my brain, my little pea-sized brain on a Thursday morning goes to control. They're giving up control. Or they feel like they're. this has worked really well for me for the last 30 years. This is how I've managed. This is how I've been rewarded. This is how I got to the position I got to is managing really performance this way, if I give that up, I'll have nothing. And that's really understanding that that fundamental difference between controlling something and influencing something. And it's hugely different. I mean, it's, it's gigantically different. And to a great extent, what this new approach to understanding safety and reliability and performance and resilience. And I mean, the great thing about being early on this journey is we don't really have a clue what to call any of this crap. We just sort of pick a word that's convenient and go with it for a while until a cooler word comes in and then we take it. But the great power in this new view is that we're shifting influence for system reliability away from the people who are probably least likely to actually make the system better. So we're shifting influence from leaders to workers. And that's a really interesting and probably pretty scary thing to do. And then the third thing I would nod at which is a part of my background so when i got my phd my advisor was a man named everett rogers do you know that name Corey? everett rogers no i don't so he's really famous but you don't know him but he, he wrote a book called the diffusion of innovation and he was part of a, um a movement just like we're a part of a movement really uh, about 40 years ago that talked about how innovation happens in an organization. And I know you know Ev Rogers because I know you've seen that model with an S-curve on it that's at one end says early adapters and at the other end it says laggards and then it's got kind of a bell curve of, of how people change. And the early adopters, those people are always first on the scene, boldly step into change quickly. They're the people with the, with the brand new iPhone. Like, you probably, well, in many ways, Corey, you are that person, but, but I always have one friend that has the latest iPhone, right? And they're an early adopter. And then I have lots of friends that I associate with that are kind of laggards. They wait for a long time for the information to be out so that people understand and they have the full gamut of information and then they change. And I think you, right. you really, you really hit on something that, organizations are being asked to shift control power, right? They're being asked to shift power away from management towards leadership. But I would actually suggest power still lives in the management suite. It it doesn't go away because they're still the bosses. I mean, we're not taking away their ability to be bosses. What we're doing is we're helping the organization shift the influence over system reliability to the people who actually own the system, not the people who use the system. That's what we used to say. That's old language. Because I yeah. would suggest workers aren't process users. 
They're process owners. And the reason they're process owners is because the process we give them is filled with normal variability. And so they have to tailor the process to the actual work that they have, which is the classic black line, blue line, you know, understanding yeah. work as, as imagined versus work as it happens. That shift of influence is a difficult initial push because of the fear of loss of power. And so we have to think then about how adoption of new ideas happens. And we have to look within the leadership suite for who the early adopters are. Who, who are the people that are going to go first in their ability to let go of some influence? And normally we know who they are, Corey, because they, they hired us. I mean, yeah. that, we didn't sneak into the boardroom. Right, we didn't sneak into the senior leadership meeting because they don't ever let anybody sneak into those meetings. We were invited into those meetings, and I think we're dumb enough or naive enough to think that because they invited us, they're interested in what we have to say, which I I think is often not true. I mean, between you and I, I think when we when we get the chance to help an organization revision who they're going to be for the future, that's a pretty sacred time. And I think we have to understand that exactly what you said, that power shifts, we have to understand that we're the stewards of helping them go through that adoption curve. We're the, we're the people who help them go on that ride where they're not giving up really their organizational responsibility and accountability. What they're doing is sort of shifting the influence for the system to the people who actually own the system. I don't know. That's Absolutely. that's a long answer, that's but that's what came no, into my brain. There's some, there's some so many stuff. You always say a lot of things that create more questions and more challenges, which is very fascinating. And I want to come back to, to the issue of innovation because that's a pretty important bit. But uh, I want to share a quick story where you and I, one, and I won't name the CEO. You know who I'm talking about. Um, you and I were invited to the CEO's office one day and uh, this particular CEO and uh, we were ushered through the various levels of the building. He was on the top level of the building. Uh, Very few people go there uh, and we were ushered through. And I remember how we were joking with people loudly in this very quiet level where all the secretaries were sitting and they were very uncomfortable. And (laughs) I remember walking past one of these secretaries who had an ankle brace and I loudly say, I hope you reported that incident. And we laughed. <laughs> Everybody was very uncomfortable. And then we sat down with a CEO, a very perceptive guy and a very genuine at heart person. And he was so focused on safety. He had a meeting every uh, second Tuesday or every first Tuesday of a month. And everybody had to phone in. And even if you were on holiday, you had to phone in. Yeah. He was so hard on this meeting. This is my commitment to safety. And people were so scared of this meeting because they get chewed up by various managers because of accidents that happened. It was a horrific experience for people. They told us that afterwards. Then Todd and I went in and we sat down with the CEO. And the next meeting was, in fact, on the 4th of July. Uh, the conference call and they had to phone in never mind if it was the 4th of July and we had a discussion with this CEO and he looked at us very intensely listened and smiled and talked through various things and Todd I remember mentioned to him that you have to lose control you have to lose control a bit because it's 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 killing the business in many ways. And, um, and he patters us out and we go, we were, Todd and I went down for a workshop with employees about uh, this new thinking. And one of the safety people came to us, about, remember it was about midday, you won't, be, you won't believe what happened. The CEO just sent an email to everybody canceling this meeting this conference call on Tuesday and said, enjoy your holiday. And this, they would never thought was possible. (laughs) To me, that's one of the most beautiful stories of within a few minutes, this CEO saw 
what he needed to do, and that was to lose control. You remember that? Yeah. I, so what I remember about that is I remember the giant staircase in the middle of the yes. executive office, which was just um, something that you just don't see often in buildings like that, a really fancy staircase. What I remember most about that meeting was that he, the CEO came down and went to the workshop because it was in the, in the cafeteria, right? It was, because I remember there were really good donuts at that meeting too. That's the kind of stuff I remember. And, (laughs) and he had already, so I love this, Corey. He had already gone to the meeting negotiating his exit strategy, which I think is really a smart idea. Like I'll never go to a party where I don't pre-negotiate an exit strategy. So I'll say, I'd love to come to your party. This will be really fun. I may have to leave a bit early. Uh, and then yeah. if the party sucks, you've kind of got your exit strategy uh, already negotiated and you can save face and leave. So he had done the same thing. He had, he had said there's no way that he can attend this workshop. It's an all-day workshop and, and he just doesn't have the time. But he said, I'd like to come down and watch the first part of it. And if you remember that, Corey, we were in that big, long room. Yes. He, he stood in the back where all the other people that weren't going to attend the workshop were standing. And I remember taking on as a challenge, thinking how long I could keep him in that room. Yeah. So I kept having a lot of eye contact with him, it was, which was easy because he was standing up in the back of the room right in the middle. So you could eye contact wasn't a problem. And it was really interesting because he was going to leave in probably 15 or 20 minutes. And in about a half hour, he went and got a chair. And I knew, I remember this? And I knew once he got a chair that um, we had him. And we we kept him. Yeah, we kept kept him that whole day. And I think think that was a big part of it. That that idea of, of giving up something in order to gain something is not new. I mean, it's been, it's been around a really long time. I think it has to do with the way people, they honestly, they honestly think the way they keep their organization safe and productive is by actually controlling everything that can possibly be controlled. And what's interesting about that is that that worldview is probably not wrong. It's just not possible. I mean, it's just, you, you can't control the uncontrollable. I mean, that's the thing about the pandemic we're in, and it's awful. Yeah. I mean, it, there's yeah. nothing good about a global pandemic at all. But it's really yeah. taught us that we can't manage the future by predicting the future. I mean, we just we don't have that ability. We have to build systems that are sort of flexible enough to manage uncertainty. And that's, yeah. that's really, that goes against traditional senior leadership definitions of who they are. Let me extend this a little bit. Because okay. coming to, you, you mentioned innovation and the diffusion of innovation. Now, if we look at... Have you, have you read that book? No, I, yeah. I, I may have. I, I can't so, recall so that is, the book. That is, um, that is Malcolm Gladwell's favorite book. So, oh, I, I mean, I probably don't need to say anything other than that. That book is is incredibly well written, but more importantly for what you do around transformation, yeah. it should be the very foundation, not of your work, but of how you think about your work. It's yeah. Rogers is yeah. amazing. The whole six degrees of separation, all that comes out of that notion of diffusion right. of it. And what Rogers studied, he was amazing actually. He was a great advisor. He was a great advisor. What he, what he studied, he grew up in Iowa in the United States, and he studied hybrid corn. And he studied farmers who planted hybrid corn seed. And, and this is in the, honestly, this is in the 40s and 50s is when he did this study. Yeah. And he watched what type of farmer would use the latest, uh, I hate to say this word, but genetically modified corn seed. So all corn is, is modified. Yeah. I mean, it has been since, since the Incas grew it in South America when it was just a, a plant that existed on one continent, right? And that's how corn works. It's, you know, corn won't grow by itself. You have to always grow corn with other corn because it cross-pollinates. That's, I mean, I don't want to get too far into this because I don't know anything about it. But because he studied how corn diffused how hybrid corn diffused he really early on 
he was thinking about this idea of how new ideas move in an organization and how they transform an organization. It's remarkable stuff. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's earth shattering in a way. It's, it'll sort of blow your mind. You know, sometimes you, you, we, we have all these new writings and new books coming out and, but a lot of the great knowledge actually are in publications that are from the previous decades. Absolutely. Great depth. And, and the one that really that I keep on coming back to my mind is uh, Charles Perrault's Normal Access. Yes. Yeah. Everybody, everybody in, the, in, in some circles know about the book, but rereading that book is so enriching all the time. Yeah, and, and it's a bit like what what you talk about this this particular book of Rogers. And remember when when, look at that. when Perrow wrote that book, that was really controversial and hated, and people discredited yeah. it. And, and and it's a lot like a movement, right? A movement when you, when you when you start to to think differently about a firmly held belief. At first, it's really frightening and scary because of the idea of giving up power, losing control. And then if you look at that diffusion curve, the more people who have these new ideas, the more these new ideas are acceptable. It, it, think, about, think about when we did that trip to Australia, which I bet was, uh, how many years ago do you think that was? Six or eight, probably? Yeah, I think it was six years ago. Yeah, yeah maybe, may, maybe even further, right? And, mm. and the people that came to listen to us were really early adopters. They yes. were they were curious and interested, and that's one of the things that's so interesting about the work we do is that for a while it was easy to do it because the people who came to the workshops we give sort of self-selected. They, they chose. They wanted to hear this new view. They understood yeah. that the traditional way to manage safety was not sufficient enough. Now that we're in the middle of sort of, I don't know if we're in the middle, but now that we're farther down the, the, the diffusion curve, now we're starting to have some people really push back, which is pretty predictable and kind of normal if you think about it in retrospect, right? Because now, now we're having organizations be a part of the discussion that really aren't as curious. They're not as, as aggressively early adopters. And that's been interesting. I don't know if you've made this observation, but it's interesting how whole industries globally adopt these ideas. And, and it's, and I guess it's because industries are pretty fraternal with each other and there's, there's a lot of peer pressure, but like if one oil and gas company goes, they're all going to go. And they'll be the top ones and then they go. Yeah. And then they all go. If one utility company goes, we're kind of watching this happen. Now they're all going to go. Um, exactly. Maritime shipping. If one shipping company goes, they all go. And I guess it's probably that diffusion curve, but it's it's very interesting to see to see how how this change has happened. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned uh, pushback. You, we're getting some pushback in certain circles, and I think the pushback comes more more from the profession, the safety profession. Sure, they have the most from, to lose. Yeah, so here's uh, a question about this. Um, the, and, and, I, and let's call it the old safety, safety one. Um, let's call it uh, a, a time when the safety profession was making things beautifully simple for the line manager. They had to get the line managers into safety because line managers were so focused on production. Then they started shifting their thinking to quality and the safety people, us included all, we lagged behind and the, the, the line operators, uh, the line managers started to take quality. They put it into the process, but safety wasn't going there. So we, are, we were communicating with engineers, with people, with quantitative minds. And we put all these safety things into triangles, common causes and root causes. And uh, we, we threw out simplistic terms like, oh, it's people's complacency. Uh, they, their minds are off the job and their eyes are not on the task. And, you know, these simplistic lines. But the line people actually took this on. 
And they started talking in this ways and safety started to become more part of their language. Now, safety too, the new movement. Are we not losing that or, or, or do, do we have this capability to put something this complex? Because we are saying this is not simple. This is complex. But we, we're losing the language with alignment people because we're not putting it into simple triangles. Yeah, so this is a what really, can we do? This is a really good point. Um, yeah, so this is, a, <clears throat> this is a hard question, actually. You ask hard questions. So, yeah, it's, it's easier to, to shift entire levels of an organization and the way they think by shifting the language because language is really interesting because language really is our indicator of how people are thinking, right? So thoughts don't control words. Words control thoughts. And that's actually called the Worf-Sapir hypothesis. There's been a dramatic amount of research around this idea for years. And the idea is, is that you create language to actually manage the way you file information in your brain. And so, I mean, it's a great example talking to you today because you're multilingual, not really by choice, but by context. You grew up in a native language and you work in another language and you've done it your whole life. In fact, you don't even probably think about it as being unusual. But my guess is, is that when you speak Afrikaans, you're thinking differently than when you speak English because that's how language works. If I speak Spanish to you, I think differently because I'm speaking Spanish. So that idea that language helps change people's thinking is really true. It's fundamentally true. And there's tons of research. I mean, for God's sakes, don't believe me. Look it up. Worf-Sapir hypothesis. It'll be hours of exciting Wikipedia reading, right? But that leads us to your question that I think is more profound, and that is, I think the question is not, can we create simple language to shift the way we think? I think the question really goes back to your life's work, which is, can we transform the language they use now to actually capture the new understanding of complexity? And really, I mean, I guess you could take this a bunch of different directions. And if Sidney Decker were here, I think I could guess where he would go. And that would be a discussion between classic Newtonian linearity, a, a simple system requires simple language. And so our concept of safety was really simple. If the workers were obedient and did what they were supposed to do, if they cared enough, if they were attentive enough, all that simple language, then we would be safe. But one of the things the new understanding is doing is it's really changing the perception of workers. The workers aren't yeah. the problem to be fixed. Workers really are the, are the problem solvers. And so our language has to reflect really the fact that the concept of workers is changing. And so now what was super easy to communicate, pyramids, and, and my favorite one, Corey, by a mile, I'll never forget this. I was doing a workshop for an insurance company, and there were probably only maybe eight people sitting around a conference table. And I started the normal crap that we always start, you know, just going, in, going into the discussion. And I had a guy push back kind of emotionally, and he said, well, let's just establish something right from the beginning. Before we go any further, he said, I just want to establish one truth. And anytime somebody says that, you know it's going to be interesting because yeah. if it's a truth, I mean, hit me, baby. So I said, sure, what do you want to establish? And he said, all accidents are preventable. And I just let him live in the silence for a while and said, you know, that's not true. I mean, we we can have some truths. We'll have to negotiate what they are. That's not going to be one of them because accidents by definition are accidents. They're unintentional deviations, right? So all accidents aren't preventable. And what's interesting about that is the rest of that workshop, I never got that guy back. Yeah. I mean, he sat there nicely because I think he probably felt like he had to because there were only like six people in the room. 
And I've often thought about that because that is so, we've done such a good job getting people to buy into the idea that accidents are all preventable, that we've built sort of this, I don't want to be offensive, but kind of religious zealoty around this idea. And we won't shift thinking if that's the belief. And the crazy thing about these simple models, the Heinrich pyramid, all accidents are preventable, those kind of models, is that they control thinking. And what scares me more than anything. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we have, shouldn't we, shouldn't we try to come up with, the, and I know it'll be slogans and buzzwords, but people respond to those and we start to control their thinking like they did in those, with those simple, simplistic things. And I know I'm barking up a very complex tree here. I don't <laughs> want to create simplistic terms for a very complex, dynamic, iterative topic. So that, we will go. We will go against what we want to achieve if we do what I say we should do. But so argue, I'm just saying, argue this they were successful. Argue this with me because because my response back to you is that complex ideas require complex descriptions. Yes. Right. And so we'll never have a a simple buzzword for new thinking. I mean, there just is. I mean, I shouldn't say never. I, I, I'm not certain in our lifetime you can simplify these. And the problem is, is when you oversimplify, then what happens is you lose the complexity. It, it's like um, it's like these systems all these companies have to track incidents, you know, their investigation s- s- protocol. You know, we have a we have a computer system where we track and you pull down these menus and you pick the cause. And you, you know what I'm talking about, those kind of those kind of investigation systems. The problem is, is when you trend information, you lose fidelity. And so instead of describing what happened, you pick the pull down menu that most accurately reflects what happens and still fits in the accounting system for the organization. Well, that same idea is what we're struggling with now is that we want to find simple ways to talk about complex ideas but there aren't probably very many simple ways to talk about complex ideas because they're complex ideas. Yeah, but we have one, and few, a few have already started to come through. If you say, and you say this a lot with great meaning, safety is the presence of capacity. Right. It's a loaded statement, but it is something that people can latch onto, and they can work with that but as they- against but they have, against to, the statements. they have to define capacity. See, the problem with the problem with finding the sloganism, which I've I mean, I'm super guilty of this. I'm this will chase me to my grave. You know, the idea that safety is not the absence of accidents. It's the presence of capacity, which I say all the time or the one I say all the time is you can either blame and punish or learn and improve. Those are catchy slogans that leaders yeah. can can grab hold of. And, and actually, exactly. I think they have influence. The challenge is is really the reason I use the word complexity is not that I'm in love with the word complexity, complexity or, or capacity. Sorry. Oh God, I shouldn't be drinking this. Early it's the same. <laughs> yeah. The reason I, you know, safety is the presence of capacity is because capa- I, I dare you to define what capacity means, yeah. right? It's, it's a term that encompasses complexity, uh, right? Exactly. I used to say safety is the presence of safeguards, presence of defenses. All those things are true, presence of barriers, presence of controls. And depending on the crowd, you know, I'll pick and choose which one to use. But ultimately, when I talk about this notion of capacity, I'm trying to find a word that allows us to accurately accept the fact that our systems are more like Jenga blocks and less like dominoes, which that's another. Yeah. I mean, that's so the Jenga stack is a, it's a stunning. It's yeah, it's a stunning oversimplification and visualization of complexity, but it works. I mean, it works really well because it really is about the best model I can think of for a complex system. I mean, it's just yeah. a bunch of wooden yeah. blocks, but it meets all the tests. It's interrelated, interconnected, interdependent, and so it manages that. But but your point is well taken. I mean, and, and part of what I'm noticing, I'd be curious to see what you think too, is that the longer we have these conversations, 
the easier these conversations are becoming. Exactly. So, so yeah. I think it's working to some extent. Yes. No. We 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 uh, we are starting to create the language, and, and and a lot of people are starting to create the language. But that language is what's going to make the movement uh, become embedded. That that if we don't change the language, and you said it earlier on, uh, we have to change the language that we use because the language is actually uh, indicative of what we how we actually manage the whole issue of safety. Right. Because uh, and if because, we don't if we don't have the right language, we, we're going to stay in the. It's like you know staying in the same place and just walking. Yeah, because because language forms thoughts, and yes, so absolutely. and so that idea that language is you're exactly right. I mean it's it's fundamental, and that's what we're doing. I mean, I, we don't talk about it directly that way, and and you know we don't get together and have meetings about changing language. But what we're doing yeah. is we're slowly changing language. And to me, what's interesting. Uh, I guess I'm kind of a glass half full guy is how much influence we're having in changing the language. Cause you, you really don't hear people talk about reliable systems now and not talk about the stuff that we've talked about this. Uh, so for people listening, there was a formula one crash this weekend, a really fiery, I mean, super dramatic formula one race car crash flames and wheels flying up and i mean it was it was a crash and what's amazing is that the driver walked away i I mean actually got out of the burning vehicle and walked away now the remarkable thing to me is that people looked at that and translated it into this new way of thinking that the reason he survived was not luck the reason he survived is because that car had so much capacity to fail safely that when it failed, it failed effectively. And I'm not proud because I don't think I'm that powerful, but I'm really pleased to see people looking at those events differently than they would have 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, they would have said there, but by the grace of God, you know, he walked away from an accident he should not have walked away from. But now nobody would say that. Now everybody would say he walked away from an accident that he absolutely should have been able to walk away from. The goal of designing that car was to allow the driver to walk away from that accident. So, so I think there's good news here. Yeah, absolutely. I remember very well. I was listening to your debate uh, on on the ASSP conference with Scott Geller. Oh God! And, uh, the argument went beautiful, and at one point you had the killer statement. When he was uh, talking a lot about actively caring, which is his uh, uh, mantra, I guess. Um, yeah. But you said, "I'd rather have a double failing, what a double barrel or double protective hydraulic system than an actively caring pilot." Oh yeah, but wouldn't you? Yeah, I want a secondary <laughs> hydraulic that a, system. That was a beaut. Let me read you. you we talked about language. Let me read you uh, a statement from. One of the new movement's critics, and the, the, the thing started off with safety too, is just words. And here's some extracts. Behavior analysis seeks to understand behavior by looking at the environmental contingencies that influence behavior, past and present. Said differently, behavior is understood by looking at the context within which behavior happens. Uh, we're looking at behavior from the influence of uh, not just people around them, but also equipment and layout and organizational processes. Uh, and we are actually, as, an, as a movement, this is this BBS movement, we are actually doing what the hop and the new movement say we should be doing. We've already been doing that for many years as part of our science. We are just hearing them with new words. Huh. What is your reaction to that? And you so, know who said this. Yeah, so, so two things I would say right away. Anybody who has to force the word science into any conversation is desperately trying to legitimize non-scientific ideas. And I don't come to that through a criticism of safety. I come to that from working 30 years in a large national laboratory filled with scientists. So science is not something you use as a defense, although that's changing (laughs) a little bit in our culture. 
Um, we can talk about that later. That's a different podcast. Science is the foundation by which you do the thinking. And so the desperate attempt to say we already do this, it's it's predictable and it makes sense. And I understand why that argument is really powerful because it has to do with a, a sort of holding on to control, right? Yeah. We want to stay in control. The bottom line, and and I would just throw this out there for the world to sort of chew on. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but the bottom line is the difference between behavioral science as a safety management tool and the new view, safety two, whatever you want to call it, as a safety understanding tool in a complex system has to do ultimately with who the target of the intervention is for. Yeah. And so BBS really is designed for bad or for good around fixing the worker, observing the worker, tracking the worker, building systems for the worker. And the way they look at the system's influence on behavior is by observing the behavior. Whereas the new view really says the worker's not the problem to be fixed. The worker's actually the solution. And so the emphasis is not on observing worker behavior in order to create system reliability. The emphasis is on looking at the system in which the work happens and not really caring about the behavior, which sounds really, that sounds super aggressive, but but if you look at the system first, well, I mean, it's as simple as saying, shift your thinking from who failed, which is classic BBS, to yeah. what failed, which is classic sort of new world view. And, and, and what's changed is that one group sees the behavior as indicative to creating failure, I guess. I mean, I think that's what BBS is saying. And the other yeah. group says behavior is just behavior. I mean, it's just it's, how people act is kind of the least interesting part of what happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the last sentence, which I kept out of the statement. Oh, let's hear it. The state, the, this quote actually proves your point. And the person who made the statement actually said exactly what you just said in terms of, and so they, this person actually disproved their whole analysis up to this point by oh, saying no. the following. Once all the variables that influence behavior are understood, adjustments can be made to make it easier for workers to make safe choices. Uh, (laughs) You see what I mean? (laughs) So there they go straight back to, they want the worker to make safe choices. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Corey, aren't we arguing or not? We're not arguing, but isn't ultimately the argument between the idea of free agency and self-determination, the, 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 it's a classic Protestant Reformation. I mean, <laughs> of all the people uh, talking to an Afrikaner about this, it's really interesting. Do, does man exercise free will, or is man part of a greater predetermined system? Right? So it's it's Calvinism versus free will. I mean, it is kind of, right? I mean, and and... What's amazing about that is the belief that workers have free agency, that they're in charge of every decision they make when they're in your workplace doing work. That's a classic, I mean, the Renaissance. I mean, the reason your ancestors left Holland, right, is because of, of they followed Calvinism. I mean, they, they went they to a... Wrong. Exactly. I mean, think about that. And what's interesting is that, I mean, the Protestant Reformation, we could go back through history and talk about this in a really deep level. The bottom line is we probably won't solve this idea, but we ascribe that a worker is not 100% in charge of their, their decisions, that decisions in the workplace are influenced by really the system in which the decision is made. And yeah. we know that's true. And, and even even the guys in the BBS world, 
or even the guys who hate the new view and write about it all the time. I never read those guys, so I don't really give a crap. But we know that's true because there's an entire industry around advertising, right? There's a reason we buy the products we buy, and it's not because we think one kind of flower is better than another kind of flower. You know, one kind of car is truly better than another kind of car. It's because we're in a context all the time that tells us that you'll be better, happier, thinner. The hair on your head will be gorgeous and and thick if you use this kind of soap, right? Or uh, right. And so I always don't use that soap. Yeah, me either. I, I would though, right? I would. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about that is that that fundamentally is a that's a really interesting struggle, and and that's really the struggle we're dealing with. But oh my gosh, if we talk about it that way, we'll we'll lose uh, people forever. I mean, uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's a fascinating discussion. But yes, we will we will we, we will uh, create uh, more enemies. <laughs> but but that's I mean to an extent. If you think about it, you can't think about what we do or what what's happening in the world, and we're a little part of it without thinking about the tension between predeterminism and free agency, because that yeah. that's really that's it's much easier in retrospect to say the worker made bad choices. But yeah. the thing oh. I would sort of tell you is that it's also just as accurate to say that the worker had bad choices. Uh, that's I love that statement of yours, that it's a difference between making choices and having bad choices. Uh, we give people bad choices. And that's just a description of Absolutely. the difference between predeterminism and free agency. Absolutely. Absolutely. We we have we have a few minutes left because we can have two more podcasts about the rest of the questions <laughs> I have, which I haven't asked yet. Um, but uh, let me let, let's do the last one. Let's do the last one. Okay. Um, there's uh, any movement, and you think about, and I always like to look at the quality, total quality movement that completely disappeared because it became integrated into right. the operations. Right. Of the of the businesses, and that's where it should live, and that's what we want in safety too, because we want upstream integration. But lo and behold, safety seems to hang on to its bolted on thing, to its let's put more barriers into place of the production process. Um, let's make the barriers smarter and leaner. But we kind of not get to that integration. To me, that's another topic that I want to talk to you on another occasion about. But we have, unfortunately, in our industry, all movements have, and you may, may have seen this written in the, uh, this one guy in LinkedIn talking and, and accusing um, us of being overlords and, uh, and consultants who's uh-huh. on for a gig. That's why you uh, use the word overlord. Oh, I get yeah. it now. I get yeah. it. No, say, I, don't read <laughs> so, any, I don't read any of that crap, so I don't, I don't ever know. Yeah, so you're one of the overlords, and I'm one of the consultants who who, who loved uh, loved to use new terms and so on. That's that's what he's saying. But here's the thing: every time there's a movement, we have this huge flurry of consultants entering the market, and as the mode or as the flavor changes, these same consultants just change their you know, today, uh, or uh, maybe say 10 years ago, everybody was a behavioral consultant. Um, then we started to get into uh, the, the most recent one that I've, uh, that I, it irks me about this. Everybody's now into neuropsychology or psychological psychology. Yeah. Now, here's the, here's the, here's the thing. The same people now suddenly call themselves Hop consultants. What are we? Is this inevitable? Yes. Is this helpful? No. <laughs> but, but what needs to happen? With but, I mean, these are really good questions. So I would say before we get started on this discussion that I'm I'm surprised it took so long. I I thought this would happen years ago. I mean, I thought there'd be a million people hanging out a shingle to talk about sort of human performance. Um, you know, back when when Shane and Tony and, and Bill and myself and Ken, the, the whole gang from the DOE back, you know, this is 
20 years ago, you know, when we put together the DOE handbook and put it out on the web and we co-opted a lot of the information from Impo, I thought, well, here we go. I mean, there'll be, everyone will pick up on this and run with it, but they didn't, which surprises me. Now it's actually got enough emphasis that you're starting to see more people talk about it. So I think you said two things that are really important and sort of answer your question. One of the things about the quality movement, and it was a movement, right? And, and, and what it did was it shifted the way we thought about where quality belongs in an organization. And the way it did that, you're exactly right. The way it did that was by helping move the definition of quality from an outcome to be achieved to a process to manage within production. Very much and, so, yeah. and so what happened is quality went from the quality inspector at the end of the line, stamping it with a little okay and letting the product go to really looking more systemically up the line for where failure was happening or where the beginning part of the failure was happening. And they would fix the quality problem earlier and earlier in the process. I would guess, at least I hope, that's exactly what happens with safety or resilience or reliability. It's all kind of the same thing in this, in this conversation. And that is we'll move safety from, you call it a bolt on, which, which is a really good software term to use. Actually, that's a hardware term to use. Safety will move from an outcome to be achieved to really a, a process by which we do our work to do that. However, we have to crack the code around what we measure. Yeah. And, and the problem we have is that we measure safety and really hold leaders accountable, hold facilities accountable to really these safety metrics. And so as goofy as it is, and we all can laugh about this is we measure the ability for you to have a safe organization by counting the number of people you hurt. Right. Yeah. And so that's dumb. And and we've always known that's dumb. It's also kind of unfair and mean. That means every leader is one sprained ankle away from being the worst safety leader in the world, right? And sprained ankles are sprained ankles. What I think is interesting is that the pandemic, which is, I, I think, going to be remarkably influential, not in the millions of people that will die or not in the way we diffuse vaccines, but I think it's going to be remarkable in that it's moving organizations from being aligned to optimize efficiency to now being much more sensitive to optimizing resilience. And what will change in this, I'm guessing, Corey, I need your help on this, but I'm guessing, is what's going to change is really the difference between measuring and monitoring, which is something Carl Weick has been talking about for 30 years or Kathleen Sutcliffe or uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, the whole gang, the Berkeley gang, Carlene Roberts, um, Todd Laporte, all those guys, they've been talking about one of the pillars of high reliability being monitoring. And I think in the old days, I got what monitoring was. I mean, you know, it's, that's monitoring. But I think in the old days, when I heard the word monitor, I thought of the word measure. One of the things that's coming out of the pandemic is that the metrics we've traditionally used to strategically manage business operations are not as functional. Absolutely. They're not as meaningful. And now measuring something that happened in the past in order to predict the future isn't very good because it doesn't reflect complexity or uncertainty, right? And now we're experts on uncertainty because we had a pandemic. I mean, we don't want to be experts on uncertainty, but the pandemic made us think, holy shit, the world is uncertain, right? Yeah. And so now we're in a position where we have to move from measuring, which I would suggest kind of quickly defined, tells us what happened in the past, to monitoring, which is why Carl White used this word, or Eric Hallnagel uses this word, monitoring, which is at, at best telling us what's going on now. Yeah. That, I think, is going to be the big shift. I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that. 
I'm absolutely with you on this. To me, this is, and, and this is the, the field that I've moved into now is, and I just call this loosely, you know, you talk about lagging indicators, right. leading indicators, and I call this field latent indicators and or resilience metrics. And this is a fascinating world for me as you start digging into what, you know, uh, not, not dashboard stuff, but windshield stuff that you want to leave in the organizations when they look ahead and around the corner uh, is, is where we want to go with this. And, and, and it's, it's, it is right sitting in front of us, I think, to actually de- to, to pick out what are the right ratios and correlations between processes that will give us this sense of predictability. I, I, you know, predictability is like, okay, I don't want to go there, but I, I rather use the word exposure. We can actually well, I like that. We can actually have insights into our future exposures. And that's more, that's more broad than to say, oh, we, you know, anybody that says they're going to predict uh, where the next accident happens is clearly, clearly a biggest liar. <laughs> um, in, 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 in this whole thing. And, and, and you see this coming out now. People are saying in software programs, we can predict where your next accident happens. Now, to me, that's just, I, I, you know, this is going to kill us in terms of as, as, a, as a movement, as a, as a business, if we start doing those kind of things, because we will never have enough data in the safety field of deviations to make predictions from. It is just mathematically impossible. But yet we're peddling this. Some people are peddling this to line people. What is a line, what is a line manager going to be, uh, be attracted by? Well, if you tell him or her that the problem is a worker, that is great because that's not me. Right. If you tell the, the manager, you know, we can give you processes and metrics that are going to predict your accidents. Ooh, I'm going to buy that. And both of those examples is why I think things are, uh, you know, turning against us in some ways. So, so I don't, so I hear you. So first of all, I agree with you hundred percent. I'm not sure things are turning against us. I would caution us to realize that this is a okay. normal part of how diffusion happens yes. and that there's going to be people that are going to resist. And we really do want to predict the future. We really want to have control. We want the worker to be the problem because that allows us to make the unmanageable manageable. Part yeah. of what the pandemic has done and all the associated crises around the pandemic, which I don't think we're done with by any stretch of the imagination. I think we've got quite a global economic ride that we still have not yet begun to uh, ride. And and I I think part of what the pandemic has done is helped remind us that we can't predict the future in order to control the future. I mean, we just, we can't. And, and, and we know we can't do that because ultimately there are things beyond safety basis. There are things that we can't predict that will happen that will change everything. And so selling an easy answer, selling a piece of software that'll predict where the next accident will happen, that'll eventually go away because it doesn't have the intellectual resonance. It, 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 people will try anything once, right? Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's will they come back the second time? No, and, you're right. There's, we should have a long-term view about this. And, uh, I think we have to. Buzzwords and neuro, neuropsychologists and all these new it's things. so funny, though. They will have their life. And, but in the end, um, you know, the longer-term longer process will, will survive. And that's the thing about a movement. I mean, you started by referring to the journey we're on as a movement. I think that's actually a really accurate understanding of it. And a movement, it it starts with these early adopters. That's why I talked about, I'm sure that's why you made me think about Ev Rogers. It starts with these early adopters. And eventually that S-curve will happen. And eventually the ideas that we're talking about as modern and somewhat controversial Right. Eventually, they'll become the way the world sees the world. And, and I think quality is yeah. a really good example of that. I mean, the, 20 years ago, quality was probably at the beginning of its decline as its own movement. 
because 20 years ago is when it started to be incorporated. I mean, look at like how Toyota just said, well, you know, we're just going to incorporate this into operations and everything we do is going to be a part of this journey. And, and I think that's what, uh, at least my hope is that's what you'll see happening um, with the stuff we talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Todd, how was it to be the guest on your own podcast? It's uh, I love I love being the the host of your podcast. This was great fun. It, it was more fun than I thought it would be. It's <laughs> it's definitely more fun to be the host because you have control of when you start and stop. But uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate this, Corey. This was really a uh, first of all, it was a complete surprise, so that's good. And it was it was really fun. I hope people um want to listen to the crap that we talk about. But maybe they will. I think they will because they they're gonna they're gonna for once they're gonna have a much more um, uh, comprehensive view from Todd on Todd's podcast. That's fantastic. That is so kind of you. Thank you for doing that. I've I've really enjoyed this. Let's do it again. Well, maybe I'll spring another surprise on you one day. Okay. So what do you think? That's it. That's the conversation. That was a little turn of the tables. A little uh, the old switcheroony. I think is what you call that, the, the old switcher B. So that was it. That's what happened. That was the podcast. I wish you a happy new year and a happy holiday season. Merry Christmas, all those things. Enjoy 2021 in a different way and be ready, be resilient, and take time to fill your own capacity. That's it. I think that was okay. I mean, a little weird. I wasn't expecting that, but that's nice. Until then, my friends, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. That's really important and getting more important. And for goodness sakes, be safe. (laughs) 